Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Christy Vogler. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Colin McCormick. And today, we're doing a very special episode. We're joined with Zoe Thomas from season one, who talked to us about Blood of Zeus. But we also have two additional special guests. Today, we have the creators of Blood of Zeus, Charlie and Blas Parlopanides. Thank you all for joining us today. Our pleasure. We appreciate you having us on. We appreciate you covering the show. It's our absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah. All right. So with that, we came up with a lot of questions and we (laughs) want to give Zoe a first crack at it because she um, was very passionate when we talked about, we had so much fun talking about this. So Zoe, start us off. What are some questions you have for the creators? This is actually my fourth time talking about Blood of Zeus. Um, So I am thrilled to get to meet you both virtually. This is a, a distinct pleasure. So thank you so much. And thank you, Colin, Christy, and Eli for letting me come back. <laughs> I guess I I guess I'll start with sort of a personal question. Basically I'm I was very curious watching this show. I'm I am a second generation immigrant. My mother is from France. And so I was very curious about how your sort of relationship with Greece and your background as being Greek influenced the show. And so are there any specific experiences you've had? We were talking about pasticcio before we started recording. Are there any sort of specific experiences you've had with your family or with Greece, the country, or with your background that sort of inspired parts of the show or the show overall? It's a great question. And, and it's, it's very spot on. So we were, you know, children of immigrants. So I think part of that experience is that you feel you're a little bit different, even though you kind of look like you're not, but you kind of are. And so the example that, you know, we always bring up is that I remember bringing Spanakopita, you know, to elementary school <laughs> lunch, and then everyone's looking, oh, what's that? And you feel like, oh, what am I doing here? You're a little embarrassed about it. Of course, we're proud to be our, you know, Greek, and we're very proud of our Greek heritage. But we saw our parents, you know, and really for their grandparents at times, you know, they had to overcome a lot of adversity and, and just being an outsider was something that was something that we wanted to bring to the character of Heron. He's an outsider. He's, he's kind of the quintessential outsider. He's ostracized. And, and there were times where we felt that to a certain extent, our parents more and, you know, their parents even more. And so that experience, I think, um, you know, was reflected in, in, the, in the character of Heron. Of course, then we took it another step and we kind of, you know, really leaned into that. And so I, I, think, um, I think it's a very good question. And I think that one of the things that makes that character relatable is that he, he is an outsider. He is ostracized. And I think all of us at some point, no matter who we are, feel that way uh, at some point in our life, um, you know, regardless of what our ethnicity is. I think we can all relate to that and feel that sometimes. I also think, too, you know, we would spend, you know, summers in Greece. Uh, there was a, a, a brief period even, too, where our, our family moved back. Our parents decided to move back. Floss went to elementary school in Greece for a year. Zoe's very proud to say he got a 10. You got a Veca. You know, that's the... I got a 20. That's the A in Greece. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, there was a time where we would we would try and go back, you know, not every summer, but every other summer. And when you're there, it just hits you differently. And and even I remember on a, a more recent trip, this was back in 2005, 
my wife, we went to her father's Horyo, my Petharov, uh, the village where my father-in-law's from. And there's a monastery there. And there at the monastery, in the one wall, the face of Aphrodite is still there because they kind of like plastered over the quote-unquote like pagan deities. And it just kind of strikes you that like, this is the home of some of the most amazing minds of antiquity. And they worshiped these gods. And they lived in a world where this is where they came to for guidance. And when you really start to, to think of that, it really then this world that is what we would consider fantasy and, and almost like, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings type world. No, they lived this and they believed it. And this is how they made sense of the world. And it just like, like I said, it, it stirs your soul. And then as you read about mythology and you read about all of these stories, again, we are the most biased people you can ask, but the pantheon of, of Greek <laughs> mythology, like I love, we love Norse mythology. That's pretty badass too. But Greek mythology still for us is like a step above and it's just incredible. And so, you know, spending time in Greece, going to these places, and then, you know, seeing some of these temples that still stand. I mean, we were hooked. And then also, too, our, our, our grandmother, our Yaya Kiriakitsa, our pro Yaya, our, uh, Sophia, our great-grandmother, you know, they would tell us these stories. They were little, you know, paramithia, like little tales that, mm -hmm. you know, just, I don't know, when you're a kid and someone tells you there's a god of the sea and he controls the ocean, you know, and it's just like, what? Like, wow, well, what's his story? Like, so... This was something that is in our bones and in our blood, and it's been in our DNA for a long time. And just as all of everyone on the Zoom, just like it's just a world that we all love and, and, and are fascinated by. No, but just add to that, because, you know, the question was too, like how our heritage played. Well, our mom did tell us these stories and our grandmothers did. And we had, you remember emotion. Most often they say that, you know, even when someone passes away, you remember how that person made you feel. And so we remember how we felt when we were kids and we were told these stories and we were in awe and we were enamored and we were excited and we wanted to hear more. And sometimes our mom would, you know, cut the story short and say, if you're good tomorrow, I'll get you the other half. And that worked. <laughs> and so that sense of excitement, how that made us feel is something that we wanted to imbue into the show. So when someone's watching it, in a way, it's escapism, but in, in the best of ways where you're just kind of drawn into the story and then you want to see what's going to happen next and what's going to happen next. And we wanted to have that binge type quality just because of this in the storytelling that was by design, or at least we tried to do it. And we were fortunate to, to you know, pull that off. Have you been back to Greece? I know obviously the pandemic happened in between sort of Blood of Zeus launching and now, but I was curious if you've if you've been back and how sort of Blood of Zeus has changed your sort of relationship now with with your family, with your with the country overall, et cetera. It's a, a very interesting question. So I um, haven't been back since the pandemic, but we went in 2017 and 2019. And, you know, the thing that always strikes me, you know, we have still family there. Our, our wives are both Greek-American and have family there. And it breaks my heart because due to the austerity cuts there, Greece has been in financial crisis since, like, they had their kind of moment of recent glory. They, they hosted the Olympics. The Greek team, the soccer team won the Euro Cup, and everyone went crazy. And then ever since then, it feels like it's just been, like, bad news and and you see people suffering there economically and family members suffering economically. 
And uh, it's interesting, we haven't been able to get back, but we've done some interview with Greek press and we're always asking them, how are you doing? How are you, you know, getting through all of this? And one of the things, 70% of Greece's GDP is based off of tourism. And obviously the pandemic killed that. And so what the Greeks are realizing is that we, one, shouldn't be so dependent on this just as tourism, but it changes everything because some of the people we spoke to is that, okay, well, they've always had great agriculture in Greece, but if you stop exporting your produce, then it becomes more expensive for the locals and they're already suffering economically. So, you know, for us, I can't wait to get back. I hope to go, you know, this summer, 2022. It's always this kind of balance between like when we can get away from work and, and, and when we can go. But we hope to get back and then we, we hope that other people will get back and, and go to Greece because the Greeks, they need it. They, they need it desperately. What I would add to that, too, when we spoke to those Greek reporters and people that we did interview, they were very proud of the fact that we did a show about Greek mythology. They're so proud of Greek mythology and so proud that we told these stories and they love the show. So when we heard that, that they embraced it and loved the show, that made us feel so good. That made our day. And the fact too, that it was one of the most popular shows on Netflix, not just in the animated space, just most popular show, period. They took great pride in that. And, and, and you could feel it. They almost needed something. You know, it's funny, part of the appeal of the gods, you know, or one of the theories, and you guys would speak better to this than, than I, I would, is life was difficult back then, and life is difficult in Greece now, and what helps is a hero. When there's a hero, you can rally behind a hero, and that makes you feel a little bit better. And so whenever we got that positive feedback from the, the Greek outlets, that, that always made us very happy, because as Charlie said, they, they are struggling. And Greeks are very proud of, of their own or anytime our culture is kind of highlighted. So like the fact that, and, and you know, Netflix was very pleased. One of the main kind of reasons why they've invested heavily in animation is to do well in Asia. And the fact that Blood of Zeus was number two in India, which is a territory that normally doesn't watch animation, wow. they were overjoyed. Now, I don't oh. know if we have Alexander the Great to thank or because they live in a multi-theistic kind of culture. I don't know what the connection is or why we did well there, but the Greeks were proud of that. They were proud that it played well in India, it played well in the Caribbean, it played well in Africa. And, you know, Greeks are always very proud to see their their culture, you know, held up and, and appreciated. So we were very, you know, just grateful. We always say, this is not our story. This is Greece's story. We're, we're just playing in this sandbox. And we're just glad, though, that that people liked it. And it shows the, the strength of Hellenism, how far-reaching. It is truly a globally recognized body of work. And, uh, you know, I think all Greeks are proud of it. What you guys are teaching just is love throughout the world. It, it really is. It, and it really is a testament to the popularity of the show. It's not the, the show per se. We think it's the mythology, maybe a little bit of both, but it's really, people love Greek mythology. And I don't know if I should share this. This might be a little too inside baseball, but you know, metrics and, you know, research and analytics are a very big part of how Netflix operates. And the original title of the show was different. It was Gods and Heroes. That was the, the original title. But then they gave us all these analytics and they did all these keyword searches through all the global kind of like, you know, Alibaba and this and that. And one of the most searched terms was Zeus. So they said, you guys have to come up with a new title and it has to involve Zeus. And they even showed us there was like a statue of Zeus in China, there was a statue of Zeus somewhere in Africa. And they're like, so we're like, oh, okay. 
I know that maybe doesn't sound like, you know, that's like creative or inspirational, but those words and these deities are known across the globe. And there's very few things that have that same kind of global appeal. You know what I mean? If you see a lightning bolt, most people will have some connotation of Zeus. If you see a trident, they will think of Poseidon. And, you know, there's only probably, you know, a dozen or so things that have such strong universal connotations. And I think Netflix was, you know, very smartly. They understand how to market and sell on their platform. But I think it was very smart to include that word Zeus because even they were saying like, on Twitter in Asia, you know, gods can mean a lot of things, but Zeus is Zeus. When you saw the awareness chart for Zeus, it's funny because they had all the other terms and Zeus was like all the way up here. We're like, oh, wow. I was a little worried you were about to say that Netflix said you have to use the word blood. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet, I bet that word tracked pretty high too. <laughs> Listen, in all honesty, I wasn't crazy about it. Blood of Zeus, it was not, I was like, oh man. But they were right. And, and you know, John Dedarian, who's been great, who bought the show and, and Dylan Thomas, who is there. And, and they were so right. And now now I actually like the, the title. But when it was when we were first going through it, I'm like, oh, what are we doing? I, I like gods and heroes. They yeah. were right. And we were wrong. Well, I was going to say, like, so being that kid on a compact Presario Windows 95 way back in the day, looking up these gods, like the reason I did that was... Artemis was my favorite growing up because I understood her to be a tomboy. And a badass. Yeah, she didn't do traditional <laughs> female things, and she was still a goddess. Like, you still did not make her angry. Acteon, don't do that. <laughs> and, and that was so empowering for me as a young girl who didn't yet have, like, you know, Katniss Everdeen, Toph from... Avatar. Those, those models didn't exist in media when I was a really small child, but it existed in this ancient mythology. And I think that's why I never went away from it. Yeah. And one of the things I, I like when I, when I try to teach mythology and think about that is that one of the sort of joys of, of myth and mythology is that it is this kind of open, almost source book. Like we kind of joke amongst ourselves that all mythology is just kind of fan fiction that just builds upon itself. And you can tell new stories and it's a culture and a tradition that encourages, I mean, the earliest kind of stuff, like, you know, Homer is really just a collection of oral stories, which you allude to at the very, you know, the opening credits of your show that this is an oral tradition. And it is, you know, I think a lot of sort of fan communities today get really into ideas of like canon and this is in or like which Star Wars things are in or out of the canon and which ones aren't. But with myth, it's 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 all, you know, it's all equally sort of in and out at the same time. And then you can reimagine characters like Artemis or Apollo. He's just on my right shoulder um, <laughs> as we're gesturing to our zoom backgrounds for those listening at home so what i'm sort of taking the long walk to get to is with my question is the because i know that the show started as originally i think it was conceived as like a live action like american horror story sort of anthology type thing about i was curious to hear about the process that led you to animation and because i really think and particularly anime because i think it was a really actually like a match made in heaven in, in a lot of ways like the, the animation style and the things that you can do in order to, to tell these stories it's so funny colin because uh you know as you mentioned at, at the very initial kernel of an idea was to do an American horror type story. And I still believe you could do a Greek mythology show where each season you tell a story. So the, the initial kind of what we initially pitched was we do Icarus and Didalus because, you know, Didalus is like the Tony Stark of the ancient world. He's this incredible inventor of weapons. 
and he is, you know, every king wants him in his court and he gets accused of murder and he has to flee, you know, to Crete. And like, it's, you could do this amazing 10 episode story about, you know, then how, how he's forced to create the maze and all of that. And what we always loved was that, you know, you have the Theseus story kind of intersected. He comes and, and fights the Minotaur. And then eventually when Icarus falls in the ocean, it's Hercules that, you know, retrieves um, his body. And so we thought like, oh, this is just like a great, like, give me 10 episodes of that. I will watch that every year. Now, in our business, you need someone to say yes, someone to buy that idea. We got a hard pass from everyone we pitched the idea to. But during that process, our agents had said, think of what the other seasons can be and what happens. And like every writer does. And what's great is that even like, you know, when Christopher Nolan and David Goyer, they said when they came up for the idea for Man of Steel, they were really supposed to be working on Batman. But they said, you know what I would do like in a in a Superman movie? He would be it'd be a first contact with an alien. You know, like, <laughs> oh, that's a good angle. And when we were just talking about this kind of doing this Icarus and Didalus story, the one thing that we always just thought was kind of cool is that like Hercules, if you look at Blood of Zeus, it is very much a deconstruction of Hercules. And mm-hmm. I always thought it was cool and because Vlas and I are brothers and we're very close with our other brother, Iphicles, who he's is his twin. Like, just what's that guy's life like? Like, your your brother is the son of Zeus and, like, is killing snakes as a child <laughs> and is, like, you know, this, like, this demigod hero that in the end, like, saves even the gods. And they get to become, you know, crewmates. They're on the Argonaut together. He's, he's a, you know, and he's not like a, he's not a schlep, but, he, you know, he's he's a minor hero. And I said, oh, that's so cool. But no one ever talks about him. Like, what is it to be like Hercules' brother? And then as we were talking, I said, it would be cool if in some ways, instead of them being allies, for them to be enemies. And if we could have almost this like Oedipus Rex story where somehow they get pitted against each other and it's like tragic and even kills his own mother. But he doesn't know, you know, we're not going to have him sleep with his mother, but he kills his own mother. He doesn't know, (laughs) you know. Netflix nixed that idea. (laughs) That one doesn't pull well with audiences. (laughs) That's on the negative side of the scale that they use. (laughs) Incest is a hard no for a lot of us. I'm going to clip. That will be the soundbite for the the episode. (laughs) You guys would be amazed. The conversations that you have and and one of the things we talked about with netflix a lot is tone and the question is is this kind of lord of the rings or is this game of thrones and basically where we came out to is that we could have the violence of game of thrones but we couldn't have the sex and incest of game of thrones like that's because the core audience is still 15 to 35 you can't you know for whatever reason here in america violence is acceptable but you know titties are not (laughs) it's true though that's not even that's not even a joke it's it's true this doesn't have to make it into the final cut but it's also welcome to make it into the final cut i think it's going in one of my favorite experiences as being a second second gen is that the popular french orange juice brand orangina (laughs) has a range of extremely erotic animal posters that are their advertisements in Europe that have not made it to the States. (laughs) (laughs) I would have to Google that. That's hilarious. All you literally have to do is Google Ohonjina ads. I'll send it to the the chat and Zoom. Um, For the listeners at home, 
do this with discretion. <laughs> it is genuinely put your kids in the other room. <laughs> it's an experience. Um, it's not safe for work. Oh my um, god! This is not what out. I was expecting, is- Zoe. <laughs> And, this is ridiculous. Right. So it's like I, I would go I would go home to France and get back to the train station in the city next to my village. And I would know I was home because there's an Orangina ad that has a sexy cactus on it. Like, I <laughs> totally unrelated to all of this other than the American puritanism towards sex. But. No, but, it's, but, but you talk about, you know, it's this is the pulp fiction of it all. Like, when we're in Greece in the summer, the TV, you would see female breasts and like that never yeah. happened. Like, oh my God. Like, you know, right. it, it is a different aesthetic, you know, in Europe. One of the like subtle things someone pointed out to me once that like is kind of like burned into my brain or something, but somebody, we were in Italy and somebody was like, there's something about the mannequins that are just different. And I can't put my finger on it. And then we finally realized that the mannequins have nipples, which is like, <laughs> the mannequin <laughs> mannequins don't have nipples. It's different. <laughs> It's like you can't you don't notice it right away, but well, you know, it's funny Colin We took our daughter to Olympia and there's a great museum there and you know She was like six, you know seven and she's like dad dad and like her eyes went really big I'm like what and she's like look at the statue. You can see his pee-pee I'm like, oh my god I didn't even think like we think we're doing this like we're being good parents and we're exposing her and we're traveling and like that's what her six-year-old brain kind of you know noticed of course naturally well and um i actually had a question relating to the violence that is in the show because i i watched it again with my students recently and the shot of Hera's arm being cut off and just looking to the inside of the arm i'm like that's some really good detail there uh, but also particularly when Seraphim finally gets to meet Acrisius and he just goes to town on that guy. Yes. And a different class of mine, we'd been looking at depictions of madness in Greek plays and how they were usually portrayed as very violent episodes, but you didn't actually see it on the stage. It was always described through a messenger secondhand. So that was what was really interesting to think about is in Greek myth, when it was being put on stage you didn't actually see the violence even though it's very violent i'm kind of curious what did you guys feel about that putting that into the story i I always loved you know aristophanes and i would read his plays and and all of those early playwrights they were all soldiers they were all warriors and and in a lot of ways when they describe the unseen wound and when you look at a lot of the drama that they create in their plays it's them really working through what we would call ptsd now and some of the, the plays are very violent in not their depiction, but in their in in what they're tackling. And so I think that's a very human connection. You know, Socrates, everyone thinks of like Bill and Ted's and, and him kind of quoting through the sands of time. But like he fought in the front line of a phalanx. He was a veteran and he was he was re- recognized for valor. Now, he didn't come home and write plays, but all these playwrights, they fought and they saw death up close. And sometimes, you know, we always try and understand what it is to experience something. Like, imagine what it is to stand, like, you know, whenever we go to Sparta, my wife's family is from near Sparta. And I always, Sparta, I love everything about the Spartan culture, but the city itself is not anything to 
Like you can skip that on your trip to Greece, to be honest. Like, I, I, and that's probably awful for me to say. We just, as a we just lost all of our Spartan listeners. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been there. I can confirm that there is one statue that you go and meet someone for a date, and that's about all there is to do, apparently. So, yeah, that's, it's like one yeah. main road that leads to the big thing of Leonidas, and then there's some mm-hmm. ancient like of what used to remain. But when you think of like what it is to walk, to hold a shield, and then take an eight foot spear and drive it through someone like that's pretty brutal like you know i know all war warfare is brutal but so then when you start to humanize what that feels like i think that's why all of these initial greek playwrights they were all soldiers and they all felt they needed to you know express themselves now part of it is too colin mentioned bringing greek mythology and anime together that's something that we had no idea it was like bringing together peanut butter and jelly like it just worked we can't say that we, you know, intrinsically knew that it would work so well, but, you know, violence is a big part of, of anime and seeing it in that world, it just really clicked and it, and it worked. Also, to answer your question, like th- there are times it's a choice and there are a couple yeah. a couple of things to talk about. Sometimes not showing is more powerful because we use our own imagination. And I always lean towards that. I always love you know, if you look at, I just saw a making of Halloween and I'm not a horror guy personally, but one of the mandates was they didn't want to show blood. And if you watch Halloween, they don't have blood on it, but it's mm-hmm. so scary because you use your own imagination and you fill in those blanks. I always lean towards that way of telling the story, but sometimes you do show like, you know, it can't be more graphic than that scene that you referenced where Seraphin's pounding you know, away. It's also a directorial thing. You know, those were some things that the director brought to the table. It wasn't, say, written in the script. It was written in the script that he really wails on the guy. But that's elevated and that's also compounded by the music. So all these things are working. But for me, with violence, like, we always love this idea of the sacred and the profane. So if you're going to show some of this violence, you also have to have a good message there. you got to have something positive. And, and, and for me, as, as long as it's not gratuitous, just, you know, violence for the sake of violence, that I, I, I just know that I, I'm completely against. But if it's a depiction of like a character and it's being true to that character and true to that world, and yes, it's graphic at times, but there's also this spiritual component. There's this positive message there and the both are equally represented, or at least there's a, at least a component of the spiritual side, then I'm, then I'm okay with it. So it, it comes down to answer your question, whether you show the violence or you don't, it, it's an aesthetic choice. And, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's like, what is most effective? It's like the shark and jaws or, you know, uh, I was just actually watching Alien the other night. Yeah. You see the alien very sparingly in that in that movie. And then to circle back to, to Charlie's point about um, this is a, a common thing we, we talk a lot about in, in classical studies and things like that, about the sort of the trauma of things like warfare that manifests and you know i think you can do a whole reading of the odyssey that's really just like the story of, of, of trauma and and also not just that the playwrights themselves like aeschylus and 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 sophocles and guys like this were intimately familiar with warfare but also the audience themselves if you're in athens and you are you know a male citizen of a certain age you have done military service and you know it's not just you know it's both for the playwright but it also this reciprocal nature of art because the the audience themselves are going to see this on stage and have that you know like aristotle talks about the the catharsis and the the purge of your emotions and and to think about this and you're you know it's a very sort of int- even though it's a you know story about orestes or you know whoever 
on the stage, like you don't know, you've never met Orestes or Heracles or any guy <laughs> like that, but like it's speaking about something that's very intimate and personal to your experience. Well said, Colin. And Colin, you know, it, w when you were just saying that, it just reminded me of like, again, you know, we don't go in the office anymore. We've been working from home since COVID hit, but you know, normally we, we sit in our office and there's just two desks that are right next to each other. And we just kind of just come up with just like, what if, what if, and when you were talking about the Odyssey, we always kind of felt like that feels a little bit like BS that it took him that many years to get home to his wife. Like, is that really true? But we always had this one idea that what if after the Trojan War, it's 10 years, the Greeks finally break through, you know, Agamemnon standing there with his brother and they bring forward Helen of Troy and, you know, uh, Menelaus just goes white. He just goes blank. And his brother looks at him and he's like, what? He goes, that's not her. <laughs> and they realized that even though they spent 10 years fighting, that she had already split and was in Egypt. But if their men find mm -hmm. out, they'll kill him. So then they call over Odysseus, who's like their most trusted general. Like, listen, you need to go find the real Helen of Troy. <laughs> and that's why he was gone so long. And that's why, you know, he didn't, or unless he got high with the Lotus Eaters, like, you know, that sounds like the biggest BS story you tell your wife, like, oh, this happened and this you happened. You guys see that show? Maybe that's a show. Maybe we can <laughs> I'd watch it. Well, I, I would love it because that's a deep cut reference to a Euripides play that nobody ever reads or talks about called The Helen, where they, yeah. Menelaus is sailing back and he lands in yep. Egypt and then Helen's there and they're like, what? And then the Helen on the boat with him disappears and she was a... An eidolon, like an image, the entire time, and oh, then that, oh wow, yeah. I wasn't even familiar with that. That's great. That. No, you great. you guys are like you were. You're right on the money. You're you're there. This, <laughs> Herodotus mentions that idea too. He he talks yeah. to Egyptian priests who claim that mm -hmm. Helen was in Egypt, and he's like, and I believe it's true because why would Priam mm -hmm. just not give her back? Like, why yeah. is he letting Paris? Hold on to this woman for 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's like, that is, I think, like the ancient equivalent of like, why didn't they just take the eagles to Mount Doom kind of thing? <laughs> like, it's that sort of like, like it needs to, we, we need to suspend our imagination for the story to happen. Yeah. You know, because otherwise, yeah, like they would probably just give Helen back right away. And I remember in the Herodotus that Christy's talking about, they call her um, the temple or like Herodotus sort of translates. I forget what, what the Egyptian deity is but he calls it foreign aphrodite and he says this was actually helen that came here wow. oh i love that yeah. foreign aphrodite that's great a little segue and part of the the popularity for the greek gods you know um we were talking about gods the greek gods and you guys you know correct me if i'm wrong were the first that took on human qualities so the egyptian gods at that time you know they had the head of a you know different animal and whatnot and that i think it was a big deal that the greek gods looked like us and that made them more relatable and chrissy had mentioned before just having characters that you could identify with and the fact that they were you know anthropomorphic gods you know anthropos is the greek word for human and yet so they had the human qualities they had our you know weaknesses and our you know good qualities you know they were angry they were jealous but they also loved and and i think that helped make them more relatable than other gods at that time to, to bring it back around this i think actually is like this is your kind of like you were saying that the show is kind of a a breakdown of of heracles but also it's kind of a breakdown of zeus because this is i think one of the most the show is really interested in kind of really analyzing sort of the foibles of zeus and his kind of you know his his shortcomings and his mistakes and and the, the the main arc or one of the main arcs to me at least was zeus kind of sort of paying the piper so to speak yeah. well to be honest con listen the, the truth is we are very biased in our views because like 
Growing up, Zeus was cool. He, he, you know, he throws lightnings. He's the the king of the gods. He's the one that saves his siblings. Uh, he's the one when Typhon attacks. He's the only one that doesn't run. But then, when you get older and you read some of the other stories, like he's actually a really awful ruler. And like, even in the most petty of ways, you know what I mean? Like whether it's the sexual assaults, whether it's you know, okay, Prometheus, you know, pissed them off, but he's going to find a way to like screw over, you know, Prometheus's niece too. Like, you know, with Pandora, like he always, he's not a good guy in the canon of Greek mythology, but we liked them growing up. And so what you always try and do with characters is that you try and find the emotional core that makes them human. And so like, this is a very small thing, but like, we always love the story of when, you know, Hephaestus knew that, you know, um, Aphrodite was cheating on him with, with Ares and, and he drops the, the golden net on him and that <laughs> Apollo and Hermes are like making fun of, of their brother who's had this happen. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's where the idea of the three of them like training and fighting together all kind of came to be. So with Zeus, it's like, well, he was raised separate from his siblings. He was raised by his grandmother. He didn't have a direct parental relationship with with his parents. So how does that affect him? Someone on Twitter said, like, that's the most ghetto backstory I've ever heard. Like, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, like, but he was this kind of. So, again, it's for us. He is not a great character in the mythology, but we always loved him. And then we tried to humanize him in this story. And and then what you always try and do it's the Christopher Nolan thing is that if you can create conflict that is tied to three or four characters and they each have a different point of view, then he believes the story unpacks itself. It, it unfolds. And for us, what we felt is, okay, if we have this story about the, the birth of Heron and Seraphim and they're kind of Heron and Seraphim are going to be kind of on opposite ends of, of this on a mortal level. And then Hera and Zeus are obviously on opposite ends on an immortal level. That's great. We have these four characters and they're all tied to this one event. And that's all kind of unpacking itself as the story unfolds. Dramatically, that's a strong foundation for a story. So we did, I think, maybe paint Zeus with a generous brush, but that just came from our own bias and seeing Laurence Olivier play him as kids and, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. But also... What, what, what I'm happy with for, for season two, and not to give any spoilers away, he doesn't get a free pass. Yeah. For what he did, especially where he kind of pushed himself onto women, he does, he, there are consequences for that. And the consequences are severe. And so I'm glad that we come down hard on him in season two. Now, hopefully also, too, all that's going to make it in. So it, it, it's not like, oh, well, because, you know, we like him. All that stuff can be just, you know, yeah. kind of, you know. Uh, he still has to stand before the judges just oh, like, absolutely. you know, anyone else. And, mm-hmm. and you know what? Those are severe and there are consequences for that. And he's going to pay the price for that. And, and hopefully he'll learn. I, I enjoyed very much your discussion of Clash of the Titans, though, because <laughs> I have to say that was a. Uh, that was a film that was, you know, once VCRs became available, that played pretty regularly in our house. Well, and I like I watched it again and definitely in the later episodes it became because we watched Clash of the Titans recently to talk about that. And I was just like, Bubo was a really obvious reference. But then seeing Talos and the Talos fight again with Seraphim and I'm like, man, how did I miss that the first time? Wow. Um so are there other Easter eggs that we missed from Clash of the Titans? Or were you guys, like, to me, there's a lot of superhero references, too. Hermes 
is pretty famous for having inspired The Flash. And it seems like you guys kind of incorporated that back into his representation here. So I was just kind of curious, where was inspiration coming from? That is something we've always pitched about this, that, you know, the, the Greek gods, the Olympians were the first kind of superheroes and and they had true nemesis. You know, the, the story of, you know, the giants, they were actually each a bane. Each one was brought into the world to kill that Olympian, to, to take on that Olympian. Sean, our director, who's an amazing guy, who's also a quarter Greek for the record. <laughs> he, yeah, he, uh, he is an even bigger fan of Clash of the Titans. He told us that in the design in episode 107, when they first go into the kind of the cave, the labyrinth where they're looking for the giant remains, that kind of sitar that they come across, he says is inspired by Calibus who is, you know, mm. this kind of made-up character from okay. Clash of the Titans. And if you look at the two yeah. side by side, you know, you can see that. I'm trying to think back now, bro. Periander, Periander is, looks like the bad guy in Jason and the Argonauts movie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's another one. one, you know. <laughs> oh, my and, gosh. Yeah, we, we, we loved those old movies. And, again, it comes down to, like, just, like, that escapism and how that made us feel and, you know, and, and bringing that. And, and Sean just did a fantastic job. We were so blessed to have such a talented director who really just, because listen, you know what it is? It's very interesting, guys. Like, okay, it's written on the page, but in animation, there's nothing. There isn't even a set or anything. Like, everything has to be created. So even when I look at, you know, everything that I'm seeing, even on screen, like, you know, Katie, who drew beautiful Apollo and all the other, you know, she did guys. the heavy lifting with the character design. Katie Silva is amazing. Yeah. Everything has to be created and, and he has to know every moment. He has to know like, okay, is, is Apollo, you know, does he have an apple? Does he toss that up and down as he's talking to Electra in that scene? Like he's staging everything and, and creating everything and bringing it to, to life. And, and someone that understands the dramatic moments and moments that you're building to and how to actually bring those to life. That's a real talent. He has that. I'm curious if there are any, because yeah, there's it's it's this collaborative process between you, the director, the art team, and everyone. That if there were you know ideas where like that came sort of from the other side, or like you saw something on the page, and you're like oh, genius, you know, like if any like stood out to you like that. We we were blessed working with the team. The way we love to work is you know we try to keep ego out of it. And now Charlie and I have been doing this you know for a while, and I think we've grown spiritually and and psychologically and and on all different facets in our lives. And we've reached a place like where it is about best idea. And if we're fighting for something, it's because we just believe, okay, that's the best idea. It's not because I need to get my idea in. So we brought this like best idea wins. That's what Spielberg, you know, uh, that's a mantra that he has. And everyone embraced that. Thank God we had just great people working on this. So it was never about, I need to get my idea. And it's like, best idea wins. So whenever there was a great idea, it's a light bulb moment. That's how you know it's a good idea. Because everyone's just like, why didn't I think of that? Oh my God, yes, of course. And it's evident. It's where you're like, does that scene work? I don't know. And those usually, no, you know, nine times out of 10 don't work. So it was just like that collaborative process and just allowing people to like pitch their ideas, you know, because sometimes even if it's not a good idea or if it's half-baked, that sparks another idea. But creating an environment where people feel comfortable and you're not afraid, oh, I'm going to look stupid or whatever it may be. And, you know, having this kind of mantra and living by best idea wins, I think helped this entire project from the character designs, from the directorial component, from music, from story, from every facets of the, of the uh, process. And to be honest, Colin, to answer your question, like 
the way that the process works is like we write the scripts and then we would sit down with Sean and go through the scripts line by line and do geography and and we would give him references and photos and and even you know images from art you know I'm very grateful uh, she just recently passed my art history professor at Swarthmore you know Connors Hungerford you don't know how many things that I sent Sean that were like literally like you know pulled from references that she showed us but then after we've gone through it with Sean he takes the board artists first they do the design work there's a team in Austin led by Katie Silva who's constantly you know we're we're talking hey you know what like you know, Poseidon should have Michael Phelps's body is what we said, because there was a version where he was very stocky. We said, no, if this guy's swimming and surfing all the time, he should look tall and lean and just just and we literally like Google search Michael Phelps sent an image and that's the body <laughs> uh, Poseidon has. But then it. after you, you know, Don't we have what's Michael called a Phelps, handout though. meeting. So <laughs> Michael Phelps fan of the show. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, you look at him, honestly, you know, they took that literally, like, you know, if, if I found the exact Google search image, like it's his, yeah, you can actually see it with Christy kind of leaning over. That's Michael Phelps's torso. Like that's how he's built. <laughs> I love it so now, is that the right choice? I don't know. Nobody knows what Poseidon looks like. There's statues of him. You know, we said the gods are all described as beautiful, you know, and that they're this epitome of, you know, physical beauty. But then uh, Sean has what's called the handout meeting where, you know, he's giving one or two scenes to different artists and it's their job then to conceptualize a first pass. And sometimes what will happen is that he'll be like, hey, guys, like I, I gave this scene to Will and he mentioned that, like, maybe be cool to do X or Y. I'm like, that's a great idea. Like, yeah. The thing that happened is that there were so many cool things that we couldn't get into the show that we had to lose those are the things that stick in my mind. I'm sure people had lots of great suggestions. The, we did episode 207, we animated, uh, 107, we animated last because Sean very rightly said, 108, the finale, is going to crush the animators. They're going to be exhausted. So I don't want that to be the last episode. I want them to have enough in the tank where they can do a good job. And so we actually animated 107 last. And like everyone was just burnt out at that point. And there was even sequences and things we just cut out. The one thing that was cool is that like what people see as they go through the fields of the dead, some of those like with the spiders and the stuff like that, that was stuff that uh, the board artists came up with that we thought were just really cool. But it was more so like there's a bunch of things that we we had written and that they even boarded that we couldn't animate. And those are the things I still miss. And I still, they're oh. called thumbnails. There's like a sequence with Alexia that I still watch. And I just, can we slip this in somehow? It makes no sense to get it into season two, but like, you know, part of me still wants to get it in there. Just speaking to Alexia, there were two things because once she starts off very strong and then like people said, oh, well, she kind of peters out. And we had another scene where we show that strength that she had that never, they just got cut. We just, couldn't get it in. And then we had another scene that had her backstory because we don't know her backstory. And that was got that killed me because I knew it. I knew that like it just it just tore my heart apart because I knew it would be an issue and we wanted to spend more time. The greatest challenge in all of this was that we had like 20 pages. And, and as Charlie said, there's four different kind of perspectives. It is a story about the two brothers. And we love all these other characters, but it's so hard when you're just limited to, to the 20 page count, 21, to get into and to delve into all those characters. So that is something I think sometimes that criticism, I think it's fair. And, and the reason is for the reason that we only have so much time, we only can focus on so many characters. 
and we love so many characters that we keep putting them in. But when you put them in, that's great, guys. But then you're not paying off certain things. And we could just mm-hmm. like we could, you know, take this and make those eight episodes into 16 episodes and what have you. So it's always that struggle of, OK, these are our characters. These are the moments that we have time for. This is the real estate we have. And we just have to try to do the best we can with the time that we have. Um, we had this like sequence with Dionysus and he had a couple scenes because we wanted to. Again, the gods are immortal in the sense that they don't die and disappear. Like what, what we clearly, I think, hopefully established in season two is that a mortal can die and then they go into the underworld. A god can die and then goes into the underworld and is judged. But then if people still continue to pay tribute to them, if they continue you know, to still care about that god, it's more like a timeout. And then they can come out of the underworld. And we wanted to introduce Dionysus in a few different stories dies. And we had this kind of little arc with him because we wanted to set up the idea that a god could die before zeus blows himself up but you know sean told us like guys we're never going to be able to animate all of this and we cut it and i remember we were having a meeting and meredith lane who was the casting director when we told her that we cut dionysus and that was one less speaking part she was like oh thank god and i saw the relief because we were cutting pages and cutting characters and i was like oh yeah we really need to like we're, we're maybe pushing too hard you know, and so there are things that we lost that you have to make do. That's that's the process of making a show. You know, there's always sacrifices. That maybe if you're like the Russo brothers, like you don't have to sacrifice everything and you get everything. But I bet you if you had them on a podcast, they would tell you like there was this sequence and you know Marvel made us cut it. We couldn't afford it, and even though it's a two hundred fifty million dollar budget, like you know, so. We always say if you want to just like what you want to write, like your heart's content, write a blog. That's that's because in our business, that's not going to that's not going to happen. I have a question about Alexia and it might go into spoiler territory, so you don't have to answer it. But like I keep watching her and I want to like her so much because she's she's reminiscent of what drew me to Greek myth of like the Amazon women Atalanta as a heroine. So something that I watched finally the third time was that Alexia is referred to as an Amazon, but she doesn't call herself that. And so I was wondering if this is just a title that's been given to her because of her training and everything like that. And the fact that there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really match up with Amazon mythology about her. The fact that she has a mother and a father that's shown in the field of death scene. Um, yeah. That's like that. That wouldn't be a thing. So you're very wise, Chrissy. Very observant. Yeah. Very observant. Okay. Okay, so so there is something still there, and she's not necessarily an Amazon, but like I keep holding out for a badass Spartan princess or something like that. So yeah, there's more to and and the backstory addressed the questions that you have, and and we're going to delve into those in season two. And she's a character that I just want to spend even more time, and it's going to be tricky because again, like we we fall into the trap of like, okay, season two, where's the focus going to be? There's a love story at the focus of it, not giving anything away. And so then, and then, but it's also Heron and Seraphin's, you know, story, but we're going to get more of Alexia. And I think that is very astute and we're going to address, okay, why are they two parents and who exactly is the mother? And then how was she brought up? And then that's going to inform her character more. And what Vlas is also referring to is that, and I think people kind of realize this from the tag, so it's not a spoiler, but Hades and the underworld and his story, that's all a huge part of season two. And so there are things that like, again, like, oh, we didn't get to put this in season one, 
But part of it is like you want to make sure you fully tell this other story now. So like we're getting some of it in there, but it's always that balance of like not wanting to just like jam it in there because we didn't get it in there for season one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But there is a story. We address it. And then I, I think we'll be able to, in the end, what we'd hope to explain in season one might take three seasons, but hopefully we'll get it all in there. With any luck, the success of season one buys you some, you know, capital going forward. And, you know, the, the, the success, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats or something. Uh, yeah, no, you're yeah, absolutely that's, right. That's the well, hope. I think all of us are excited for an underworld story because, like, that was, I think, one of their favorite scenes that we talked about Um was mm, the pan yeah. over of the underworld and you're like yes oh, i'm ready to see this <laughs> yes. to take a moment i just thought that was like such an effective storytelling scene because no words pure images just action where you see you know hermes collect the soul take the soul you know i think like a weaker show would have just had somebody sit down and be like this is what happens to souls in the underworld but no <laughs> we see it play out we see the souls waiting on the shores of the sticks we see what happens to her soul the coins and it all happens almost wordlessly and then i was and i was like i think to me i think it was episode three or four and and, and to, that was my favorite opening of of any of them it's one of our favorites and that's the director, you know, Sean just nailed that. And he did that beautifully, visually, and the music and the pan of the underworld, that was all Sean. And, and he, I don't know if you want to tell him the story, but like he really sacrificed a lot to get that shot. Uh, and, um, <laughs> well, because that was a sequence we talked to Sean a lot about. And there's a, a lot of layers to it, but we had explained to him where the season two would go and what some, some of the things that would happen. And then we also sent him photos like there's a place in Peloponnesus where they say is kind of an entry into the underworld. There's also this island out in the Aegean. And we, we sent that to Sean as a reference. But in the script, we had this panic shot where we describe all of these different kind of realms in the underworld. And this was kind of in between episodes. And, and there was a down period in production. And Sean was in Hawaii with his girlfriend. And we were looking for things to cut. And he's like, he's, he would always go, hey, bros. He would always call us the bros. It's like, hey, bros, how important is this panning shot of the underworld? And I was like, Sean, this sets up like this is everything we're going to be dealing with in season two. And he's like, all right, God damn it, I'll do it myself. And so he spent <laughs> a day and a half of his week vacation in Hawaii drawing that while his girlfriend oh, was down at the beach. Oh he said gosh. they got like, I think they got into an argument. And so I always feel very oh, guilty because oh, I, love, I love that. that ruined the relationship. That was, like, oh, that was it. That's enough. That was a straw that broke the back. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. So thank you for bringing it up, Colin. That was great. Appreciate <laughs> it. The sacrifice was worth it. We appreciate it. That, that's the thing. What you deal with, because again, like, you, you know, we worked on the show for two years. You get to know everyone. Our group is a very tight group. We still get together for dinners. We had an amazing group of people work on this show, and everyone works very hard. And like, it's that fine line, like, we're glad that shot's in the show. We wish that didn't happen to Sean. He had asked two different board artists to do it. Sean being the amazing kind of perfectionist that he is, he wasn't happy. He showed us, you know, where they kind of landed. And he felt in his head he could do it better. And he did. But, you know, it, it took a day and a half of his vacation. So we, we, we took him out to dinner as a thank you. And, and he knows we're indebted. Yeah. <laughs> I love your description of talking about tone and sort of going in between Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings or like superhero like DC or Marvel, which maybe have some more like comical effects to them. 
And I feel like Blood of Zeus just like weaves this very great line in between all of those. And it has some of my favorite, I would call them fantasy tropes, like the magic sword, divine parentage. Um, but I appreciate that you guys kind of always put a little bit of a twist on, on some of these. So do you have uh, a favorite fantasy trope? Are we going to see some new ones maybe in, in season two? You don't have to answer that part, but things that you, you really enjoy from myth that you maybe wanted to make sure were, were in this well, story. You know, maybe that's why this is going well, because we're on the same page. We love this idea like, okay, this is something you're familiar with and, you know, something you're familiar with in mythology, but we're going to spin it a little bit. So what you think is the way it is for the reason it is, yeah, no, there could be another reason, but at least you introduce that. You have something to anchor or to hook people with. And a big part of that is going to happen in season two with something that, oh, you've seen this relationship, but we're going to tell you what really happened and why you believe what you believe, why it was that story. Why was the told story was told. Yeah. Here's the real reason why, which is kind of also what we did in some ways with the opening titles of like, okay, it's an oral tradition, but hey, here's one that's lost. And so I don't know, there's something cool and fun about doing that. So do we have a favorite one? I, I, you know, listen, Charlie came up with the idea that these guys should be brothers, the Hercules story. And I think it was brilliant. And we love, you know, Breaking Bad. And one of the mantras on that show is like, you go forward by looking back. So you just look, okay, well, if this happened, well, then how does it inform, you know, decisions for the characters as they go forward? And so a lot of our process stems from working that way. I would say probably my favorite is in terms of like taking something that's familiar, but then spinning it is what we're going to do with Hades uh, in season two. Awesome. Awesome. And you know, Elijah, you have all these conversations because like Vlad said, when you're doing animation, you're literally building everything. And so we would have these conversations and some of like Sean and some of the, the board artists you know, they're like, listen, we don't want to do quips. Are they going to be quips? Like when you have the initial meeting, because like people left like very stable studios to come work on the show. And, and Powerhouse is like an indie. They're kind of like an indie rock band, you know, like so people were leaving Sony and these big companies to come make the show because, you know, like this one board artist. He's like, and I don't want it to sound like it's like slanderous, but he worked at a very big comic book company. And he's like, I'm so glad I don't have to draw in moments for the quips where they stop to make a joke because I always thought they were stupid. And I'm so glad that you guys aren't doing this with this show. But that was like a conversation with Sean that we wanted to play the drama real. We wanted for this to feel epic and mythological and that we don't have to have and cinematic. Cinematic. That was, again, by design from the music to the way he, you know, the shot selection. That was all by design. Because if you watch anime, like especially Japanese anime, like they save their budgets for the action. So there'll be scenes where people are talking and you're just on like a static shot of like the phone and it's just kind of panning and there's no animation there. But they're just doing that to save their assets and money for the crazy action sequence. But what happens is, is that you lose you don't have that kind of traditional filmmaking reaction shots. And that's something that, you know, we really want to do is to make the emotion land. So like Vlad said, we just love mythology and fantasy. And we wanted to do an adult version of this story. And what was great is that once Netflix was cool with that and signed off on it, and we kind of figured out what was the acceptable level of like violence and, 
and they, you know, they're very clear about, you know, nudity and sex. So that pushed us away from Game of Thrones. But we were also told we kind of had to deliver the action and violence that's expected in anime. Um, so it wasn't, you know, Lord of the Rings, which we love, but obviously they're not as, you know, no one gets a, a knife through the eye or, you know, uh, gets beaten to death. Frodo doesn't bludgeon anyone. Um, so it's finding that balance and that's, but that's fun. That's, that's the fun part of the show. After we've written, having these conversations, because you can take the same script and do a hard R version, or you could do a PG version. And just by sprinkling in a few jokes and directing it differently. And just want to say Netflix, we just were so grateful. And especially to John Darren who gave us this opportunity. They were just great. They were just great to work with. It was the most fun we had professionally and creatively in, in our entire career because we were also involved through the whole process, you know, in, in on the film side, you get rewritten. It's the director's driven medium. You know, we saw this story from inception of idea all the way to the very, very end. And we got to tell, you know, the story with some very, very talented people. And we told the story we wanted to tell for better, for worse. And so that was very gratifying. But I still have to blame Netflix for the lack of monster titties is what I'm hearing. (laughs) We are on the subject of sex because this was a question at the end was like, who is Apollo in bed with? The two people, because like it's been killing me for the longest time. It's the we basically said it's the the story of the male lover from Sparta that he hit with the uh, discus. I can't think of his name. That's why he has that's why he has the scar along his head. And then the nymphs oh. that he was always associated with. Those are not. Those are references that there's no way from watching the show you would ever surmise. And it's better to keep them a mystery so you didn't hear that. Like we don't know. Come back to it. Well, when we get to it, they, like when, when you actually say the answer, I'll just bleep it out. It'll just be- <laughs> 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 I need to because. Yeah. I sp- I would spend time like freezing the frame, like shots like this, and be like, okay, that's who that is. That's who that is. Sure, Christy, that's what you were looking at. That's what you were paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to solve mysteries, and I need to know who everyone was. And that bedroom scene is like, who's that? Who's that? You know, also- Christy, it's very smart though, because there are certain gods. Because of we kind of pitched Sean what would happen in the first episode of season two. And we're like, we need to see Athena. We need to see Demeter. We need to get them on screen. Artemis. Now, there's other times where he would say, Artemis, we need to see her because she's going to do X, Y, Z. There are other times like this scene, it doesn't matter. We don't, it, you put whatever God you want in. And then they would go and look through these like lesser gods and like, hey, what about, we're like, great. Whoever you want and Austin, whatever you want them to look like, have fun. Now, some of those gods are actually, they, the artists drew themselves into the show. And so oh, they're not even like, oh. yeah. Which we were, we didn't care. We were happy that. that, you know, like knock yourself out. Like you guys are working your butts off. Great. If you want to make yourself a god, all, all the more power to you. I would use that as a chance to shout out my, my favorite god, which is uh, Rubigo, the, the Roman god of corn mildew. But, um... <laughs> That's Colin's self-insert. Yeah, it's just, just a guy with a bunch of moldy corn. <laughs> well, and, you know, one thing that you guys might find just a little funny, the, the merchant that Heron deals with in the first episode, technically he's not, but that's actually modeled off of our attorney. He wanted to be in the show, and so we sent Austin a, a his headshot, and that is, I mean, technically we're not, because, you know, he didn't sign a name, image, and likeness thing, but if you Google Jeff Frankel and you look at that image, 
there might be similarities. There's one from our brother, because Al Leiter, the baseball pitcher, went to our high school, and he's such a great guy. He donated, you know, a lot of money to the school. They picked up the baseball field. They have, like, the scoreboard, which was, like, 250000 So we got to get him in one of these seasons. He's going to be in so season two. Like, Al Leiter. Yeah. Get like a discus lighter. thrower or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. A little discus thrower. There is no baseball in ancient Greece. Why is this guy in there? Throwing? I don't understand. I will say something you, I think that you all did really incredibly well, but you mean both you two, the bros, but also your production team overall is really make the environment and the story feel modern. I mean, obviously, it's set in ancient Greece in this sort of timelessness, like this timeless past. But I, in particular, I mean, I'm, I was reminded of it because I'm looking at Eli and Christie's back, or not Eli, sorry, Colin and Christie's background. Eli's got the monsters, who, of course, I would love to talk about. But <laughs> the uh, the sort of um, the wide variety of cultural and ethnic representations in the show was, I thought, extremely impactful, both because, of course, modern modern interests and diversity and shows, but also because a recent thrust of classical scholarship has been the debunking that the idea that everyone in antiquity was a beautiful, well, I shouldn't say a beautiful, heavy square, scare quotes, Western European white person, right? And which is obviously very not true of antiquity. There was so much mobility in the Mediterranean. There was so much trading and interaction between the Med and there's, you know, listen, a lot of the Greek gods we kind of half stole from the Egyptians. Uh, there yeah, was a lot yeah, of, there, of there were, you know, there were colonies in Asia Minor. There was colonies in Magna Gratia. Everyone was, you know, so we expressed that to Sean. The other thing that like, again, it's probably like one of these stupid conversations. Like, how did you guys waste the whole day on this? But like we had sent Sean like a bunch of, you know, pictures of ruins um, and temples that we had been to. But then we had the conversation that, like, that's how they appear now. But when they existed, like, you know, Christy, you were in Crete. Like, it's amazing what you see, like, the colors and the vibrance. So is it yeah. just kind of white marble or do we color some of it or do we do in between? And it's like we went on and on, like, belabored it because part of it is, like, I don't know if the general audience, like, mm -hmm. Colin or someone made it, or maybe it was Elijah, but, like, they mentioned that, like, there's a lot of exposition gets thrown out in the show by like the audience and like some side character. And part of that is, is the, our unease as, you know, as writers, like, do they understand what's going on? And like, do they get this? And like, you never want the audience to be confused and you don't want them to be confused by what they're seeing either. Because I think if you ask most modern viewers, they would think that like temples were just white and it was like all pure white marble. And, you know, they think of like right. Mykonos and they see the white paint and the blue roof. They don't realize like right. you know, the Elgin marbles were like painted and they were beautiful and there was gold and like, and so you're trying to make up this fake aesthetic. Like, do you do truly what it looked like? Does that feel weird to the viewer? Does that feel foreign? Like, we don't know what the right answer is, but we would have these conversations and then you just look at it and you'd be like, that's cool. Or no, that's a little too much. Let's, you know, pull some of this out. And to be honest, we should probably hire like a, a, a classic, you know, consultant. Um, You've got four <laughs> waiting right yeah. here. I know. There you go. You've got four right here. But to speak to, to Zoe's point, we're proud of that. We're very proud yeah. of it. And, and you know, we're glad that, that it's in there. 
The diversity. The diversity is part of it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And also speaking to monsters, according to Netflix, monsters are very popular. So it's according uh, to their metrics. Yes. So. It's one of their most. Monsters were awesome. They have like 30 <laughs> buckets that they use to categorize shows. And monsters is a bucket that does incredibly well. And wow. so we had talked, we had long discussions with Sean, like the giants weren't even in, you know, mythology, they're the same size as the gods. Like if you look at like some of the pottery and the ceramics, you know, they're equal in height. But when you say the word giant now, intrinsically, you think something big. And so we said, Sean, like, you know, maybe we should make them bigger. And then he's like, yeah. And, and I don't want, Sean's big thing is I don't want a row where all 12 silhouettes are the same. He goes, that's just not interesting yeah. visually. And so we then went on this process of creating giants. And, and so it's, you know, that's the fun part of all of this. And what why doing it in the animated space is, is so much fun. I can't wait to see what they do with Cersei at HBO. That book is amazing. I think it'll be a great show. Those are amazing writers. But part of it is like part of me feels bad for them because that stuff's hard to pull off in live action. Like it's much easier when it's just like, hey, you know, Aaron, draw this. She's, Will, a, draw she's this. a great writer. The author of Cersei. I mean, I just Madeline Miller. Yeah, yeah oh, shout out to I'm Madeline. Oh, I have it right here. Oh, yeah. Actually, that inspired it. is that's it. Look familiar. They, What's uh, where we got the blood of Zeus? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh, because wow. we, we're huge fans. Oh my gosh. Cool. Yeah, she, intertextuality. <laughs> we're talking about the cover title for listeners at home. Yeah, the yeah. cover of Madeline Middler's book. If you look you look at that and then you look at the blood of Zeus where it's just hair on space and they have the Greek key mm -hmm. around it because we were trying to come up with key art and no one was sure. And someone said, we should just do a Cersei title. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. And one of the artists came back and... That's how we ended up with that. She's brilliant, though. That author, she like, That's I just read her book. stuff. I'm blown away. Just blown away. I'm like, okay, she's in a whole other league, in my opinion, with her prose. She just is. I think I'm speaking for everyone, but I have, I'm confident in this. But I would say that the giants are probably one of our favorite parts of the show. And we oh, just sort of love the cool. monsters and the creativity. <laughs> what gave that away, Colin? <laughs> I had a real <laughs> random kind of question, which is, I was just wondering, actually, have they made any, like, action figures or things like that? Can you get, like, a physical one of these guys? That, oh, you, should, bro, you should send them what that, there's, that one artist There's made. this one artist in Dubai who reached out, and he's been making – uh, 3D. He's been 3D printing these sculptures that he created of the gods, and mm -hmm. they're amazing. The one he did of Hermes and Hades, they're like they're so good. And we forwarded them along to Netflix, and uh, Consumer Products is looking at it. And we, we were very grateful that they released the soundtrack. That's something they don't normally do. And they've said maybe for season two, for the launch, they would do something with figurines because like. And, and I asked him, like, if he could make, you know, the, you know, we're not saying the hundred handed one or, you know, like, but like even <laughs> just the Cyclops, like, you know, which was very much an homage. That's the Harry, uh, Harryhausen Cyclops, like, yeah, to the T. Absolutely. Like, it's a, a direct yeah. homage to that. So we would love to do something like that, but that's kind of like above our pay grade. We'll see where they, <laughs> they shake out. Netflix is there, this beehive of creativity and, and production. But they're just so like you just see they're just constantly onto the next, onto the next, onto the next, and uh, so we just hope that this will be something they do maybe for season two though. That that would be really cool if they could do some. some I want a musical. Reads. That's what I want. I really do. I want like the musical version of Blood of Zeus. Oh my gosh! 
So that sort of makes me think, and we can sort of maybe use this as our our wrap up for you guys, wrap up thoughts. If you had like the dream project, no budget, would you would you choose the musical? You had all the time in the world, or would you choose the animation? Would you choose the live action miniseries? You know, or a movie? Wow. What's what's the dream? Blog. For me, that's a, that's an easy <laughs> No, the dream, the dream's easy because like when, because we're dreamers, you know, our parents always were dreamers. They instilled that in us. I don't instill it in our, our, our children because life is short and, and it's important to have dreams and it's important to try to live those dreams. And it's important to try to be true to yourself in a world where everyone's lying to you. I think people owe it to themselves to be honest with themselves. It's the very least you can do. And that brings you wherever it brings you. But but the dream is like, you know, this has been a dream so far. It's been one of our mother's prayers that was answered because to be doing this, especially during the pandemic, you know, there are huge writers that just aren't getting work right now. And we're, we're, we're doing this and we're loving every minute of it. And then for the dream for me would be like to finish this and we know where the story is going to go. We have an idea for a spinoff where we can explore also – hopefully with some female writers, female characters, which is something that we're very excited about. Because again, this is a story about the two brothers and the focus has to be there for now. We're going to do all we can, but we can't force things and we're going to do all we can. And we'll see what happens with, you know, the, the spinoff. But for dreams, the dream would be to finish this story. And then maybe if they were ever, if they ever Netflix wanted to do a live action version of it, that would be a dream. And then to do a musical too. I, I know it sounds crazy, but I don't know. Six if- seasons and a musical. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's always yes. a musical episode. You know. I, you know. Always. always. All of them. You could have yeah. the muses show up and inspire everyone to sing. <laughs> It'd be amazing. Because like, there, there are things that we were just, you know, Charlie and I, and, you know, we're crazy because we're always thinking about it and we're obsessed with it and attention to detail matters. And But there are things that we didn't get to explore, even the animation, because, again, we're limited to that 20 pages, like, you know, different ideas and stories and, and, and just to delve into more of the characters that you would be able to do in the live action space because it would be an hour. And like, you know, you would work with some other writers, like this is what we were thinking, this is what's there, this is what we felt worked. And there was always this idea that we had or this storyline. So, you know, that would be a dream to be able to do it also in, in the live action space. And, you know, if there's a musical, I would love that too. So who knows? What do you think, bro? Well, you know, like you said, the spinoff and, you know, that I'm just so proud of. We wrote the script and, and Netflix is, you know, they said they want to develop it. It will all depend. That will only go forward if season two does well. So fingers crossed. Tell your listeners, season two. Show <laughs> yeah. We love working in the animated space. We, we still have a bunch of live action features that are kind of some of them are kind of starting to come together. But I've loved animation. There's the story of Leonidas. You know, if you really look at his story, like if I won the Powerball, first and foremost, I would do something laudable. I would do something charitable, give back to mankind. But there is part of me I would use on animation and just be able to make the show the way we wanted to make it. Um, but the story of Leonidas and how he was never intended to be king and, you know, how his his mother was, you know, was the queen. And she, his father was forced to take uh, another wife because initially he couldn't sire a, a male son. And and so, you know, he got he was forced to get remarried and then immediately produced a male heir. And then, you know, Leonidas's mom got pregnant. And he was the third son of the second of the initial wife. But fourth in the chain and so they didn't care so they said go train go be a soldier 
And then thank God he did, because the Western world might not have survived, you know, the Persian invasion. And there is an animated version of that story that we've kind of been noodling for a long time that I think would be awesome. But, you know, what we've learned too, Elijah, doing this is that like in life, there, you can't force anything. You never know what's best for you. And half your career is making the most of the ideas you create and then making the most of the ideas that come to you. And there was a job we were up for at MGM right before this. It was an open writing assignment on the feature side. It was with The Rock. We had a great take. We pitched it. The executive loved it. We thought we were going to get hired on that job. And long story short, they hired someone that The Rock had worked with before. And, and I remember being truly crestfallen, being like, this was BS. Like, we were perfect for this. But I thank God we didn't get that job because three weeks later, John Dardarian from Netflix asked us to come in for a general. And that's where Blood of Zeus was born. And so we would have never come up with this. And we've loved working on this. So you don't know what's best for you. you we just hope that if people watch this show, they then take the time to read about Greek mythology. They take the time to, to study this and maybe, God willing, go to Greece and visit some of these places and see that this antiquity still lives within us and that we haven't changed all that much over, you know, 3,000 years. We're still the same flawed human beings. You know, I know now we have technology and we have all these other things, but, you know, it's so important and why history is so important. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, listen, you just read poetics. Like, if Aristotle doesn't blow your mind, like, I don't know what will. But even for another project, you know, we were, were doing research about this American ship in the 1800s that got taken by the Barbary pirates. And uh, it was at that time, America didn't have a Navy. And this is the first time we sent troops overseas. It was these Marines and they hired seven Greeks to come with them to try and rescue them. That's where in the Marine Corps hymn, the shores of Tripoli, that's where that comes from. It's a reference to this mission. It's the first time they raised the American flag overseas. But the sailors that were captured the one guy kept a journal and it's in the Library of Congress and I, and I started reading it. And this guy was so articulate. I don't know if he was the Ernest Hemingway of deckhands or what, <laughs> but like I was blown away. And I think sometimes we have this like arrogance because we live in this modern world that, that you know, that we're somehow smarter or maybe better. And, and I, I think nothing could be further from the truth. And that's why when you can go back and read these first person sources, the stuff that you guys probably teach and are on your syllabuses, we see how complex and dynamic we have always been and that the human condition continues to evolve and we gain insight by looking back. So don't just think forwards, think backwards. And that's why in a small way, we're glad we're working in this space. We give you guys credits for teaching in this space because it's so important. I think it's more important than ever. And so, you know, if we win, yes, we would spend money and do more Greek mythology and Greek Historical <laughs> anime, yes, we would. But um, so in the meantime, we're very happy to be doing this. Absolutely. And I would add that we want to thank all our fans and, and people like you, too, that talk about the show. I mean, uh, we're indebted to all of you. And again, as Charlie mentioned, what you guys do is so important that you teach the classics. Because I think just in life, if you can kind of approach everything with a little humility and you hear those stories... There are real lessons that can be learned, you know, the, the, the actual dangers of hubris and all different types of lessons that are in there. And I think that's why they've also endured. And that's why people, you know, still love the Greek mythological tales, because there's something to learn from them. 
And so I'm just glad that we have good people, you know, like you guys teaching them and that you continue to do that. And, and just want to say thank you again, because um, we're indebted to, to, to our fans. How can you not love Greek mythology? There's either so either like a love story or something. someone does something that angers the gods and they punish them. And that's like juicy, kind of soapy stuff. Like, it's all just great. My students today were translating. It was a Latin class, sadly, not ancient Greek. But they were translating a short story that corresponds with the chapter they just finished in their textbook that was about the marriage of Peleus. And my students were very, their favorite parts about these little stories we translate that are primarily myth-based is how dramatic all the gods are because they, the students get so into it. They get so excited to translate, you know, a language that they don't necessarily like learning. I didn't love learning Latin. I loved where it got me, but, but the process can be painful. But they always get so happy when it's about myth because it's so universally sort of the emotional aspects of it are so universally appealing. It's so funny you mentioned that, Zoe, because and I'm maybe a little ashamed to say this, but, you know, our daughter now is into the challenge on MTV Mm. and we were watching it yesterday and there was a guy, there's both Americans and Europeans. And the one guy said like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm Spanish and, and he's from Spain. So we both speak Latin. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, Sophia, no, that is not what Latin means. They speak Spanish. They are both Latin, but they do not speak Latin. That is a whole different language spoken by the Romans. Um, and uh, literally that was just Wednesday's episode we watched. But the other thing I'll say about the Romans, like they may have conquered the Greeks, but then Hellenism conquered Rome. Like if you look at Byzantium, yes, they were Romans, but the, the Greek influence is strong. So I've written papers on this subject of, you know, Horace famously says that, you know, a captured, a captured Greece conquered its sort of rustic captors or something like that. The Romans themselves were deeply anxious about that kind of thing. <laughs> That's true. There's that famous quote, though, from the Romans. I always love them, bro, we're going to steal this. And you always kind of steal every once in a while. And like, I shouldn't be saying this. But there's that famous quote, you know, where they talk about the emperors and they say, you know, you can kill everyone except your successor. And I always think that's so interesting because like, yeah, you can kill, kill, but eventually you Someone's can't kill gonna... your successor. Someone's going to step in and, you know, we might give that line, you know, someone's going to say that to Kronos, but I just don't know who yet. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love it. Well, I think unless my co-hosts have any last ones they want to jump in, I just wanted to thank you, uh, bros, once again, Adelphi, <laughs> Parloplanides. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really amazing having you. It's just been really, and just the, not post like just the knowledge and about the, about myth and about the show and all the sort of behind the scenes, but just the warmth you're bringing to us and, and, and to your fans. I just think that's really commendable and really, really fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more from both of you. Well, we'd love to come back. And, and the reason of that, I think it comes from you guys. So, you know, I, that's coming. We, I was joking with Zoe. Hit us up when season two drops. Yeah. <laughs> we, we came into a warm room. So, you know, it's, it's all just thank you. We love the podcast. We appreciate you guys covering the show. And the one thing I would say to your students is that I know this seems like a bleak time and it, has been the most surreal time of our lives. But we always, you know, we, we mentioned our great-grandmother, Proya Yaya Sofia. She was born in what is modern-day Turkey. She was an ethnic Greek living in Turkey, born in the early 1900s. During the burning of Smyrna in 1923, she was 19 years old and she was pregnant. And a Turkish officer came and shot her husband in the head. 
and they set the town on fire and she had to flee as a refugee. She went to Greece. She, you know, found some relatives to live with. Then the Great Depression hit. And then after, you know, and, and one of our relatives who had come to America and was sending money because he was working at a grocery store, he was able to send money back. The money became worthless because of hyperinflation. They ended up using it as toilet paper because it had so little value. Then the Nazis invade Greece and occupy Greece for five years. One out of every 10 Greeks starves to death. Then what happens? You have the civil war and the, and the communists and like the communists, like there's this amazing story where they hit our mom in a, in a, in the stove and they left our grand, our great grandmother, Sophia with who were at 40, had been wearing black for 20 years. And everyone thought of her as an old lady. And she was only 40 years old because the communists wanted to kill our grandparents. And like she endured all these things and she was still very positive and always happy and like, We've just gotten used to a very high standard of living and, and, and relative like calm and peace in the world. And the last few years have sucked and been crazy, but like all things relative, like we're okay. And there are better days to come ahead. And, and one thing that she always emphasized with us is to be positive, even through hardship. And I hope people, you know, it's a very cynical, dark time. Don't let that stuff poison you. I just want to add to that the last thing, and it goes back to Greek mythology. So there was hope in Pandora's box. And, you know, this debate whether hope was a good thing or a bad thing, you know, obviously you, you want to be hopeful that you can achieve something, but you don't want to be delusional. You know, I want to, you know, I hope to make it in the NBA. Well, I'm a little, that's not, but there's also that hope that, oh, that can actually help you sustain you through those dark times. And we believe hope does come from the dark. And we believe in terms of which hope it is that it's a good thing and good thing happens with hope and we have hope. And so they should all have hope that things are going to turn around as Charlie said, and that things will, you know, um, become better and there will be brighter days ahead. So hope's a good thing. Tell them that if they have a question of which one it is, tell them that. Thank you. Thank you both again so much. Um, we're really looking forward to season two uh, and, and, and staying in contact and, and just hearing more from you. And uh, thanks again for coming, for gracing our show with your presence. Pleasure. Bye. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.